All right. Good morning, y'all. I'm so glad you're here um, as part of our online campus or at our Timber Grove campus this morning. Hey, if you're here, you're part of the story, and I love you, and I'm so glad that you're here to be a part of this. I hope that today's message is uh, meaningful and helpful to you in some way. I was writing it thinking this is probably the simplest message, and maybe, maybe if you're lucky, the shortest message you've heard me preach in a while. Um, I really wanted to, to give you something that would not just uh, make you think, but that would encourage you and uh, be very practical. So that's, uh, hope, hopefully that's where uh, we're headed today. We're, we're in the middle of this sermon series that's uh, throughout the month of October, we're, we're um, talking about some of the modern day mantras that you'll hear all the time in our culture. You'll hear people say them, maybe you say them, and, uh, and the series is called True Lies. The point of it is to take these modern day mantras and mottos we hear so often and to compare them to the message of Jesus. Now, that part might not surprise you. You know, it's, it's, um, it's pretty common to go to church and hear them talk about how the world is wrong about something and Jesus is right about something, okay? Um, so you're probably expecting us to call these mantras lies, but why are we calling them true lies? Well, it's because we believe that these modern-day mantras we're talking about all have seeds of truth. They all contain grains of something good and true. Maybe deep, deep within them, but there's something good and true there in the original intention of these, of these sayings. It was true about last week's mantra that we talked about or heard Kale talk about, um, uh, be true to yourself. There's, that's not an evil thing to say. But, you know, you have to look for the, the truth in it. There's real truth somewhere inside of there. It's all about, about what you mean when you say, be true to yourself. And the same could be said for some of the other mantras we're going to be unpacking throughout the rest of the series, like karma is real, um, or like follow the science, or other kinds of things you hear a lot, and they're assumed to be true, but, but they might not be completely in line with the Bible, our understanding of truth, in terms of their execution. So, we're going to be looking honestly at these things, these things we say, and, uh, and hopefully not just being critical, but um, what I'm really interested in is shining a spotlight on the truth that lies within these statements so that maybe we could shine a spotlight on some common ground that we share regardless of our religious beliefs and, uh, and maybe have some better conversations, all right? So the same is true about today's mantra. Um, which is maybe not that new of a mantra, but it's still modern. In other words, it's still relevant today. It is, love is all you need, all right? Love is all you need. Now, uh, the Beatles were singing about this one <laughs> about 60 years ago uh, with All You Need Is Love, right? Their famous hit. And, uh, and yet, even today, maybe even more so today, people as much as ever have uh, continued to cling to this idea that love is all important. Love is all you need. Love is really all that life is about. I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of people in our culture would still have a hard time arguing with the, the idea that love is all you need. And so um, what I wanted to do today is just kind of unpack this statement with you and find the truth in it um, while also comparing this uh, statement to the, uh, to the message of Jesus and his gospel, Okay. Now, the same thing applies to some of the other derivatives of this statement. Love is all you need is also expressed in other similar ways, like love is everything, love is all that counts, or even the, the very popular motto, love is love, which has kind of become the, the unofficial motto of the uh, LGBTQ movement in our culture. 
all right? The beautiful thing about these phrases and these sentiments, these statements, is how close they come to the, to the, to the truth of God as it's expressed in the Bible. Like sometimes you could, you could exchange some parts of scripture for the things people are saying, like love is all you need, and, and you wouldn't lose that much meaning, at least on the surface of it. And, and this really gives me hope, okay? So I'm feeling like I'm in a good mood this week. I've got my, you know, uh, my representation here uh, on my chest as our Astros are going into the playoffs and uh, it's, uh, it's an exciting time. I'm feeling good. So I'm gonna give you optimistic Eric today, okay? Because sometimes I'm cynical, Eric, and sometimes I, I, I may not say to you what I'm about to say right now, but what I'm going to say about this phrase today and the people who are saying it in our, in our culture is that when I hear people insisting on love, even if their, their means and methods of pursuing and attaining that love are, in my estimation, misguided or unbiblical, when I see them fighting for love, insisting on love, believing in love, it gives me just a shred of hope just a sliver of, of hope because I see a little bit of an opening there. And, and I, I start to think that maybe as fallen as the world is sometimes and, and as messed up as people seem to be sometimes, maybe we're really not that far off. Maybe people aren't that far away from salvation in, in, in God as, uh, as sometimes it may seem. Okay, so I know it's easy for us sometimes to look at the world and, and the people in it and to watch the news and go to social media and just get angry. I have decided not to be that guy. I've decided not to be that Christian who just gets angrier every day when you bear witness to the depravity out there and, and we go to church and we just complain about the big bad world and all those sinners out there. I'm not gonna be that Christian who just you know builds walls around myself and watches more cable news and takes to Facebook to talk about those people. I've chosen not to be that Christian. Instead, I'm gonna look for the truth in the things people are saying and doing. Instead of just... Um, in an impersonal way, judging, casting judgment, pointing fingers, condemning people who don't live the way I wish they would or I think they should or the Bible says they should, I've decided that I'm gonna be the kind of Christian who chooses to love first and to find the truth within uh, what people are saying. So I understand the sentiment people feel sometimes, I understand how Christians get frustrated. I do, I do. It's a frustrating world. And I know that some Christians have special, a special kind of frustration and angst in them when they, they see certain kinds of sin going on in the world. That's a natural thing, and it's not godly, but it's, it's part of our fallen nature. Even as Christians, we will judge some sins as more severe than others because some make us more uncomfortable than others. I know Christians who, for example, um, you know, when people take to the streets to march under a mantra like love is love, holding you know, their rainbow flags. I know Christians who just feel disgusted. They feel uh, beyond angry. Um, they, you know, it eats them alive. And uh, you know, I, I understand the feeling that, uh, that rainbow is a, is a biblical symbol and it's just personal for some Christians, but I wish more of us would understand the opportunity <laughs> that we are forfeiting when we so 
impersonally cast judgment on people we don't even know for marching under these mantras that we think are hogwash or living lives that we think are depraved. And instead, I wish we would see the opportunity to listen closely, to build relationships, to build social capital so that maybe we could have better conversations with folks in our lives, whether you're related to them or you know, whether you're friends with them or work with them, um, folks in, in your lives that, that might need someone to, to speak some truth into their lives. Um, I, I wish we could look at something like a parade of people insisting on something called love, maybe not what we wish uh, they defined as love, but, but something called love, they're insisting on it, carrying a biblical symbol of forgiveness and, and reconciliation. I wish we, more of us, could see just this sliver of hope that I see this week. Because, I don't know, as cheesy as it might sound, when I see someone or hear someone who has refused to give up on love, I, I might go so far as to say that, that at, on some deep fundamental level, they've also refused to give up on God. They're, they're not anti-God, you know? They might be anti-Christian or anti-church, but, uh, but when someone insists on love as a guiding moral principle that is universal, right? When people say love is all you need, they mean that for everyone. That is an objective truth that they believe in their hearts. And I see a sign of something deeper happening there. I see an opportunity that if we Christians understand what's in front of us, we, we might be able to make a real difference in the lives of those that, uh, that are not in church on Sunday mornings, all right? Because as godless as things might have seemed to become in our society, uh, the overwhelming majority of our neighbors still believe in love as this transcendent force. And as long as that is the case, we have an opportunity to introduce them to what real love is and who the source of love is. And I think we can only get there if we have the kind of relationship, the kind of trust that is that's built on respect and listening and, you know, a little bit of empathy once in a while. Only then do we have the social capital with someone, the trust built up with someone to introduce them to the God we believe in, the God who is love. But if all we do as Christians is look down on them and, and beat them up with shame or whatever, we keep them at arm's length because we find those misguided attempts at love to be repulsive or sinful or whatever, we could be missing out on these opportunities. And I think that would be a shame. So I want to talk a little bit about that today and about what those conversations could be if we listened closely to people who say things like, love is all you need, okay? So we're talking about a world that is still, though fallen, in love with love. Or maybe, as my granny used to say, they're just in love with the idea of love. Or you're in love with being in love. <laughs> Sometimes I think that's what's really going on, but that doesn't even matter as much as this principle of love that people in our world still believe in. Like the fact that someone who claims to be an atheist could still say love is all you need tells me there's still a sense of objective moral truth there. People should love. People should be loved. Those are big theological statements that I think over time could become a, a really important conversation that could lead someone to God. 
Because we know a God who, according to the Bible, is love. 1 John 4 says that God is love, right? Not that, not that he is what he does, not that he does love, not that he is, you know, uh, good at showing love or he wants to love you. He is love. It's his nature. It's his essence. It's who he is. But it's not only that. This same God who is love claims to have created every human being, including the one who gets on your nerves the most. God made that person in his image. So every single human being bears the divine image within them, which which can only mean that all of us, too, were made to be love. You weren't just made to fall in love. You weren't just made to, to you know, love people. You, you were made to be love. Walking, talking, embodied love. That's your truest essence. That's your nature. That's everyone's nature. That's possibly the best explanation for the universal human fascination with love, right? Why have we in every time and place written songs and poems and and been obsessed with love across every human civilization? It's possibly because every human being, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, whatever, every human being was created in the image of the God who is love. Imagine if we could have these conversations, if we could build the kind of social capital with people who don't believe what Christians believe, but still have an openness with us on this topic because we've chosen to find and see the good in them, the image of God in them. Imagine, all right? So, but it doesn't end there. The narrative of this storyline continues because we also believe that um, while we were created to be love, we also we're affected by these sinister forces of darkness, right? These oppressive, evil, spiritual forces that are highly adept at tricking us and trapping us and deceiving us about the most important things in life, including love. And they have done a number on us um, in this way. And I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's a too hard a sell to help people to see how, how um, uh, Forces of darkness in this world, spiritual forces of evil are at work to get us to misunderstand love. Now, they'll play on that desire. The desire for love is still there, and we're told the desire for love is still good, but the definition of love is what's off. And and if the desire for love is good, but the definition is off, then our aim is going to be out of alignment. So we're going to continually shoot for love, want love, crave love, aim for love, but we'll always miss just a little. And that might explain the total despair that sets in when we try to find love but can't. Or when, you know, the, the pain of falling in love but not being loved in return or the, the panic of finding love and not being fulfilled by it like you thought you're supposed to be. All those deep transcendent feelings could be explained by this deception that's happened. Maybe it's not love that's wrong. Maybe it's our view of love that's got us out of alignment Maybe it's our definition of love that's, that's off, all right? So we've got a God who is love. We have people, all of whom were created in the image of the God who is love. So we, we were all created to be walking, talking love. It's our truest nature, but we've got these forces at work to muddy the waters and mix us up and get us off the path, all right? So now what, imagine with me what a, what a difference we could make 
if we as Christians could lead people to have these kinds of conversations, if we approach the world in this way, instead of just pointing fingers, what if we approach the world with the assumption that beneath everything we see, even the depravity, even the sin, all the ways we see people living their lives, looking for love in all the wrong places, what if we still just saw the God-given desire beneath the behavior? the God image within each person who just longs to be loved because of who made them in his image. Now, if we could start there, we would have, the, I would think, the, the, the respect and the attention of the world around us. If we would start there with that assumption, unfortunately, we don't, and we miss the opportunity to cultivate these real relationships. Um, relationships with people through which, through these relationships, we might have opportunities to lead them to understand and see the things that Jesus once led us to understand and see, which is that the desire for love within us, this unquenchable desire for love that we've been pursuing our whole lives is actually God-given and good, but it's our definitions of love that are a little bit off. That's what Jesus helps us to see. He never leads us to repent of our desire for love, but we repent of our methodologies, our definitions, our pursuit of a love that's less than godly. So it's not the desire for love that needs attention, really. It's the definition of love that needs to be tweaked. And, um, and I've seen in my own life, maybe you have too, when it's not, when someone continues to pursue love with um, all the passion of their heart, but, but it's a love that is poorly defined, we find ourselves in some real trouble. So this is where there's a lot at stake. For people that are drifting or wandering, maybe even for you right now, I want you to know it's not the desire to love and be loved that's wrong. It's just potentially the definition of love you've accepted that's a little off. And it can be fixed, but if we don't pay attention to those things, we can find ourselves in some pretty dangerous territory. And here's why. I'll just explain this. All right, this is going to move quickly. Six things right here. The first thing is um, that that, that, uh, love, to be love, must always have an object. Okay, so whenever you seek love or you fall in love, you're going to you're going to claim an object of your love, like you're going to have a beloved. <laughs> In order to, for it to be love, it must be directed at someone or something, you know, whether that's a person or whether it's money or whether it's a, a baseball team, or whatever, you're going to have an object of your love. That's just common sense. The second thing to know is that the object of your love will eventually become your God. I know that's a little extreme, but I think it's a truism nonetheless that your, uh, your beloved, whatever it may be, over time will become your master. You will serve it. You will, or let's call it a person, right? You will serve them. You will bring them offerings. <laughs> you will make them promises. <clears throat> you will even confess your sins to them and beg for their forgiveness. You will live for them. You know, you will think about them. Uh, you, you, all the things you do uh, with a God, you will do for your, the object of your love, the love of your life, right? You will, you will 
quote, Ed Sheeran songs to them. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, you'll tell them, you know, you know, all that you are is all I'll ever need. Like Ed Sheeran, I'm in love with your body, whatever. Like you'll just, you'll go crazy and, and, uh, and they will be your everything. Well, your everything is your God. So your, uh, the object of your love always becomes your, your deity, all right? But here's what happens eventually, because it's just a person. Your feelings will fade. No person can bear that burden. And you'll realize, the third thing I'll say is that people make lousy gods. People make lousy gods. They cannot sustain the pressure of those expectations. People, no matter who it is, even your person that you're sweet on right now, whatever, like they will disappoint you. They will break your heart. They will let you down. They won't always love you back the way you think they should. They might cheat on you. They might, you know, leave you. You never never know with people. They rarely live up to our expectations of what love should feel like. And in our disappointment and despair, it rarely even occurs to us that the problem isn't them, it's us. Like, it was never fair of us to put those expectations on them to begin with because no human being can shoulder the burden that only God is meant to to shoulder, that only God is able to carry. Like, no person should ever be the object, the ultimate object of your love because the expectations are too high. And what then happens, um, almost uh, terrifyingly, honestly, this is a terrifying thought, is when we realize that after the feelings of love fade because people make lousy gods, uh, we begin to look at things a little differently. And heartbreak, this is the fourth thing, heartbreak makes us cynical about love, eventually. (laughs) Heartbreak makes us cynical about love. Spend enough time worshiping objects of, uh, that are human. Spend enough time making people the objects of your love. And you'll eventually run out of love to give because of the letdowns, the disappointments, the unrequited, unreciprocated love. And terrifyingly, eventually, you will grow cynical and maybe even give up on love. And someone who's given up on love, uh, that's a hopeless place. That's hell on earth. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Um, he said, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, It will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. All right, so heartbreak will eventually, inevitably make us cynical about love. When we put our hopes in people, that's what happens. But there is an antidote. The only antidote to this kind of damnation and isolation is true love. This sounds like a Disney movie, but I earnestly believe this to be the case. This means that we need to bring our definition of love into alignment with the truth 
of God who made us in his image. He is the only one capable of shouldering the burden of being the objects of our love. He is the only one who, can, who is worthy of that kind of a place and position in our hearts, the God who is love. So true love must be about God, right? True love, the kind of love that redeems our pain and despair, mistakes of our past, the kind of love that absorbs all of that must be focused on God. So the sixth and the last thing I'll say is true love is loving the image of God in a person. Now this is next level love. Some of us ain't ready for this kind of love. We're still stuck on the person. And eventually we'll learn our lesson, I think. Eventually you learn the lesson that people can't live up to those expectations. Only God can. But when you do, you really do turn a corner. Because when you choose to see love differently, not as just person to person, but you choose to believe that to love God is to love him through the people in your life. So that every act of service and self-sacrifice, everything you do for the people that you love is really an act of love to the one who made them too through them. And through your acts of love, you're actually loving the God who made you in his image to be love. That's where the hunger comes from. That's where the appetite for love comes from. That's why we're desperate to love and be loved. And a life without love feels like nothing. Look, the, the Beatles lyrics don't sound that different from 1 Corinthians 13. If you really think about it, What's Paul saying in the love chapter? You know, the love is patient, love is kind. Without love, it's not. He's saying essentially that all you need is love. But his definitions are different than maybe the, the other Paul, McCartney, <laughs> whatever. I think, I think this is the critical difference is that for Paul, when he wrote about love in 1 Corinthians 13, it was couched in a bigger conversation about God, specifically the God of love revealed to the world in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 is about Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 14 is about Jesus Christ. So why is the only time we ever hear the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, at weddings where we just celebrate you know, secular kinds of love most of the time. If you read this passage at your wedding, I don't mean your wedding, I mean the other ones, all right? But most of the time we're just lift, lifting up this kind of soulmate philosophy, you complete me kind of sappy superficial love. That's not what Paul meant. And whenever he hears us only reading 1 Corinthians 13, at weddings, as a bride and groom awkwardly light their unity candle together, he's got to be banging his head against the, 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 the golden roads of heaven. I don't know. He's got to make him crazy because what he was talking about when he said that, that love is patient, love is kind, it does not boast, it's not envious, love never fails. He wasn't talking about the emotions of love. He was talking about the source of love, the God who made you in his image. Specifically, he was talking about Jesus who came to show us that there is no, no distance too far for him to reach. There, you cannot run far enough away for him. There is no amount of sin that he wouldn't forgive. There is nothing you can do to make him love you any less or any more. His love for you is absolute and unconditional. 
He is the only one deserving of that place of being the object of your love. He is the only one who will not let you down. He is really the only one who will ever love you for you and not for what you can give him in return. I believe that's what the world outside these churches we come to on Sundays, that's what the world needs to hear. That's the conversation we need to be having with people who are spending their whole lives desperately searching for love. Not that you're wrong, you're sinful, you're bad, you don't belong. No, no, no. That desire in you comes from God. It is good. It is holy. Your definitions are a little bit off, and it's got your aim out of alignment. But come on, let's talk about it, because this God who loves you and me, he loves us through our sin, through our misunderstandings, through our mistakes, no matter what. This is the God of the Bible, and I think this is the God the world needs to know about. We can't have those conversations if all we do is judge people in an impersonal way and keep them out. But when we listen, when we listen close to what they're saying, when they say things like, love is all we need, maybe we'll hear a seed of truth that over time, when nurtured, could become a really fruitful relationship, a really uh, incredible opportunity to lead someone, not just to know love or to be loved, to lead them to the source of love. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for uh, this reminder today. Uh, it is, uh, it's easy to forget, not just that uh, the fact of love, as we see it in the Bible, it's easy for us to forget that, uh, that we are loved by you, that you love each and every one of us, and it has nothing to do with our performance or track record. It has nothing to do with where we spend our Sunday mornings. You just love us because it's who you are. It's in your nature. And God, we're reminded today also that you created us to be like you. You created us in your image. And so that's who we are too. We are created to be loved. And we've missed the mark and we've tried and failed, and some of us have given up on the concept altogether because we're cynical and we're heartbroken one too many times. God, I pray for renewal. Give us hearts of flesh again. Break our hearts of stone. Help us to love again, not just uh, as an emotional act, but help us to be love, walking, talking, uh, ambassadors and, and images of love every day, wherever we go. God, we know that we live in a world that's broken. It's easy just to, to judge it from a distance, pointing fingers and looking down our noses and clutching our pearls. Lord, may we not be those believers, but instead send us out into the world to share your love with those who are seeking it so desperately outside. We pray with grateful hearts in Jesus' name, amen.